Uh, Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Kivu podcast episode, whatever. Um, this is your intrepid host, Drew, and I'm joined today with my special guest and coffee mug matching friend, Luke Parrott. Hello, Luke. Hello. It's good to see you. Good to share a cup of coffee with you this morning, Drew. It is good to share a cup of coffee. It is not the morning. It is five o'clock in the afternoon where I am in Germany. Well, it's the morning here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, beautiful Colorado. Colorful Colorado. It's gross. Yeah. I wish that we were sharing this cup of coffee. I wish that we were sharing this cup of coffee at the Lake Biasito Country Market and Mexican food from these Located mugs. Located in Biasito, Colorado, mega metropolis. I always, I will think about that place with fondness for the rest of my life, but I don't think I will ever be there again, which is kind of interesting. There's a bit of grief in that, and we'll talk about grief later, but... So today's topic on the podcast, Luke put up a bat signal basically on Facebook saying he was going to do a Linton observance um, on the subject of race relations in the United States, basically. And that's super uh, reductionist, but we'll get into it more in a second, because that's what this entire episode's about. It's going to be about race relations, Lent, and some really sticky subjects that if you think there's not a problem, you don't have the same Facebook friends that I do because I've noticed even within the last couple of days after Beyonce's performance at the Super Bowl, for instance, even an innocuous thing like a Super Bowl halftime show performance, there have been some pretty pointed and heated conversations about race in the United States that are starting um, through that. And so I want to talk a little bit but so Luke, you are doing this for Lent. And so let me, let's talk a little bit about what Lent is. So it's 40 days starting today. It's recording this on Ash Wednesday and going until the Thursday before Easter, which is called Maundy Thursday in the church. So you don't observe Lent on Ash on Good Friday or Holy Saturday, but just until Maundy Thursday. And then, Traditionally, your Lenten observance takes Sundays off, usually. Um, that's not always the case, but that's just kind of the way that, that I've always seen it done. Um, and, you know, usually people give up really dumb things like chocolate or um, alcohol or coffee or things like that that, that really don't um, affect them in their everyday life. But traditionally... Lent was a time in which you gave up something you actually benefited from, even something that was good for you as a way to show that you don't need anything but God and as a way to sacrifice so as to somehow, as to somehow understand the feeling of sacrifice that God went through, through Christ, those types of things. So people give up things that are actually good for you, like, like listening to podcasts or listening to radio in your car, um, people will give that up. And that's actually a really tough Lenten sacrifice. And, 
And I recommend that one actually to a lot of people that if you're in your car all the time and you're listening to music all the time, try giving that up for a minute and you'll see how much you actually rely on that as opposed to fully relying on nothing but God for sustenance. So Luke, what are you like, what are things that you've given up for Lent in the past? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think given what we talk about when we think about giving up something has been a popularized way of seeing the Lenten season. And we see that really quickly becoming restraining ourselves, refraining from the chocolates, the sweets, the alcohol, the whatever are the stereotypical things. Um, but when you really like dive into that story of Jesus going into the desert, which I incidentally just read this morning in honor of Ash Wednesday, um, which I'm trying to read a, a, a favorite gospel story each day right now in my life, is that you, you don't necessarily see Jesus, first of all, you see him led and called into the desert by the Spirit. So there's a calling, I think, that's a part of this whole Lenten thing, where maybe there's an impression on the heart deeper inside of you of what you need to give up. So I don't know that it's necessarily here nor there as to what that thing is. Maybe it is chocolate. God bless you if it is. Uh, but it's a specific calling in, I think, or calling out that is taking place in the process of Lent. So I've never like looked at Lent as like, oh, I'm going to give up chocolate again this year or, um, or desserts, no longer desserts for 40 days. I've always seen it as Jesus was kind of stepping into this time period where he was being called deeper into the heart of his mission and his purpose. And so for me, it's less about giving up something as it is like pressing in deeper to the heart of God on something like Jesus comes out mm -hmm. very clearly refreshed. He's tempted three times. And we like to look at those temptations and his lack of eating as the focus. But really what was happening in that time coming out from there was a refining and a affirming of what he was about to go do. And even the temptations right. themselves are like, I'm not going to be like this. So what am I going to be like? Dot, dot, dot. Read the next chapter and you'll see who Jesus is going to be. So for me, like Lent is... I've, yeah, I've done a lot of stuff. I've given up desserts in the past. I've um, refrained from certain habits that are common uh, to me. But like this year, I just felt like I wanted to press into something that's deeply rooted in the heart of God that, call, that the spirit I feel has called me into, which is a very serious conversation um, around racism in America today. And I feel like God's asking me to step into that deeply and I wanted to bring other people with me. So I just posted something on Facebook and said, hey, does anyone want to try this with me? And I've got maybe 15 to 20 people in a Facebook group together going through this together. Yeah, I think, I mean, you brought up a really good uh, story that the, in my, in Matthew. So right now I started something a couple of weeks ago where I had been challenged by a mentor of mine actually to write every single day because I love to write and it's a spiritual discipline of mine just to write things down. Um, and it, it makes me feel like uh, it, it's, it makes me emotionally healthy. And he said, write every day. And then he also challenged me to read some scripture every single day. So then I combined the two and I'm actually just working through from Matthew one. And then the next day was Matthew two. And the next day is Matthew three. And I write something and put it on the blog. And when I got to that story of Christ in the desert, which I think is Matthew 3 in Matthew, um, it's, it's super interesting because the temptations Christ is given after the fast 
So after his 40 days and 40 nights of no food or, or drink, he's tempted with things that on the surface are not bad. Like it's not bad to want to eat. It isn't bad to want people to know who you are if you're the Messiah. But he turns them down, not because they're not good, but because they weren't the plan. And I think it shows you that if you go through this sacrifice season of 40 days in, in this case, of something that truly hurts you to, to give up or something that truly causes you to press into, like you said, 40 days of even meditation, 40 days of just spending, giving up 15 minutes a day to spend in prayer and meditation, you will see that the idea of God's plan or the idea of God's desires for you personally, but also for the community will become more clear, which to me is why Christ was able to say no when tempted by Satan, because he had gone through this fast. So now he is deeply in tune with the heart of God, deeply in tune with what the plan actually is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the purpose of giving up something is because you're tuning into something else. I think we get, we get obsessed with the former when we're supposed to be looking at the latter uh, of what that giving up is going to inspire inside of you or draw you deeper into. It's like, the whole point of Jesus going to the desert wasn't so he wouldn't eat. <laughs> right. Oh, cool. Jesus didn't eat for 40 days. That's awesome. No, it's what happened in that giving up. And I think that's what we need to meditate on and focus on as followers of Jesus in this Lenten season. We are often, we are oftentimes quick to dismiss fasting as Protestants, uh, as something that the religious do. And we think, well, we're about grace and not works. And so fasting is not for fasting. Fasting is for the believer. Even Christ says that the fasting exists for us. Uh, we don't exist to do those types of things, but, but it exists to help us as a benefit to show us who God is and show us to, to remove the distractions of what am I going to eat next? And what am I going to do? And what's Facebook doing? And, and remind us of the heart of God. So, Let's transition from what Lent is, which we've just kind of gone through as a season. That another, another great thing in the history of the church is that when you observe things like the Lenten disciplines and Lenten sacrifice, you partner yourself up with a history of thousands of years of believers who have done similar things to you, uh, getting you out of your own headspace of saying, I'm the center of the universe, but instead saying, no, I'm a part of something bigger and grander and more wonderful, which is this expression of uh, faith in what God is doing. So for you, the way that you wanted to experience this expression of what is God, what, God, what is God doing in the world, hit you close to home with what is, God, what is God doing in America and specifically what is happening with race relations in the United States. So what led you to that? Yeah, well, it's a pretty personal story, to be honest. Um, I, my family has walked through some pretty deep tragedy in the last, last two and a half years with my older sister and her husband losing two, two daughters to uh, terminal conditions um, where they both lost their uh, lives in the first uh, 10, 12 hours of birth. 
Um, so uh, I've been in a deep season of grief because of that, because those are my first two nieces. I have three nephews, um, so I know what it's like to be an uncle, but I was there present for the birth of both those babies and uh, walked through the whole process with them and felt the deep grief attached to loss and death. And to be honest, like, and it was back-to-back experiences over two years and like the layers of grief started to just weigh on me to a point where I was very deep in grief and getting grief counseling uh, when everything erupted in a little town called Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and the whole national spotlight turned to a focus on Darren Wilson and Michael Brown and what happened there. And the media turned all their cameras towards Ferguson, Missouri. And the debates started about facts and figures and who's right and who's wrong and what actually happened. And the weird thing was, I would have been caught up in all of those semantics and arguments but because I was so deep in grief like if you've ever been there if anybody listening has ever been there and I know Drew you've been there too like you are so deep in your grief that it's almost like the whole world is tuned out to you except anyone else that feels exactly what you feel and it's like you're a magnet towards any other feeling of grief because grief is also a deeply isolating and alone feeling that I think most people have. And so when Ferguson erupted, I didn't hear any of the arguments and the debates. All I heard was pain. And the pain was coming from the streets of Ferguson, from the black community, and honestly, the black community all around the country. And I heard people speaking out in sorrow and pain, and it felt exactly like the pain and suffering I had felt with the loss of my two nieces. And so I just, my heart just opened up to their story and their narrative. And it just, it just took me on a different path, I think, from a lot of other specifically white males in America who maybe have never been open to listening to another story about how people of color see and experience their life in America today. And so I was kind of, ushered into that, swept away in that, in my own grief, and realized that um, this shared grief I had with the Black community connected me in a different way to a new story that I was not familiar with. I was not comfortable with either, and I wanted to challenge and disagree with. But because my heart was so wounded and hurt and beat down from my own grief, I was open and listening and hearing stories and welcoming and receiving those stories. Uh, even sought out some people in the black community here in Denver who became really good friends of mine who um, were also going through some pain and suffering. And it's there where I really found solidarity and it's there where I really found the other side of the story, so to speak. Yeah. And I think grief you've touched on grief is one of the more uh, difficult to hammer down uh, emotions in terms of how it affects people in terms of how it, expresses itself in us. So for me, the only way I can describe grief, I lost my father when I was 21, so that's now it's going to be coming on uh, nine years here on the 27th. He died in 2007. And for him, so, so for me, when it happened, because it was so, such a sudden thing, because he didn't, it wasn't prolonged, we didn't know he was going to die. He just was alive. 
on one day and was dead the next the next day of a heart attack. And the way I describe grief, my, my father, yeah. And the way I describe grief is um, there's movies where there's war and, and bombs and stuff go off. And when a big bomb goes off, and sometimes they'll show um, the camera from the point of view of someone nearby the bomb. And it just seems like everything is just ringing. Like you hear the ringing in his ear. And then someone comes to talk to him and he sees this person talking, but he doesn't hear anything that they're saying. That's how I felt in the moments right after my dad died. And then there'd be times where random things would trigger that emotion coming right back up. And then people would talk and it would sound like the teacher from Charlie Brown cartoons. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, I literally couldn't hear what they were saying. Like they could have been saying the nicest things to me, but it just sounded like wah, 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 wah. I mean, I, I, I was numb uh, to emotion. And then the next thing that grief did to me personally was it made me rank everyone else's pain. So unless your pain met my level, what I deemed my level of pain, I dismissed it. So then when things would meet my threshold of what real pain or suffering was, those things became much more important to me than anything else. Because that was, like you said, that's somebody that knows, that somebody that knows what it's like uh, to, to walk this, this road, to walk through these, with the, in, the, in the old days, in the ancient days, sackcloth and ashes. Someone who would sit with me in ashes or whatever, in grief, um, as an expression of just how much we hurt. And so, like you said, when, Ferguson happens, and when even before that, when Trayvon Martin happened, I immediately identify not with the African American community because I can't identify with the African American community being a white man, really. But I do identify with the families of these kids, kids who are dead because they were alive one day and now they're dead, and they can't put five and six together. Like they can't put it together. So. I do identify with that. And so that's the, the story that I'm always more interested in. It's not the story of how do we justify what the police did or how do we justify, you know, why they shouldn't be feeling like they are entitled to anything. The story that's more engaging to me and more compelling to me is, you know, what do we do about this grief and about this very real pain that always just seems to be bubbling under the surface? Yeah. Yeah, and I feel for me, grief has been the appropriate channel to connect me to this conversation, this story of racism in America, this conversation of white privilege and what that means, that that's not liberal semantics or ideology. That is a very real experience uh, that we have. Um, and my grief woke me up to that and my travels abroad woke me up to that. Um, yeah, these are conversations that need to happen, and they especially need to happen amongst evangelical Christians, I would say, because we are so averse to this conversation. And I'm really, I read stories like I just read um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter in the Birmingham jail. Yeah. You read that, reader, pick that, the writing up, you can get a free PDF of that, just Google it. Read it today, and it's like he's writing it to the white church of America today. It's really eerie. The exact same way 
that white um, clergy were responding to Martin Luther King Jr.'s activism, his sit-ins and his controversial approach of civil disobedience. Um, the same semantics and the same language is being thrown around by white clergy, white Christian Americans today in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. It's, you can just read right into it. It's about as clear as day. So pick it up and you'll be astounded. So there's a couple of things that we need to define. And I, letter from Birmingham jail to me, if there was to be a uh, council of churches today and I was invited, I would push for letter from Birmingham jail to be included in a third testament of the scriptures. I mean, I, it to me is one of the more powerful pieces of spiritual literature ever written, especially in the 20th century. But we need to define a couple of things, I think, for some people that definitions are getting a little twisted and hazy. And one of them is what is white privilege? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let's just call, put this on record that this is two white dudes talking about racism. So it's kind of like the joke of the day right here um, right. when it comes to that. But I want to be very clear, one, that as a white male, I'm learning a lot about what this means, um, how to become more racially literate. And I realize that I'm among the uneducated, especially when you throw me in a population of people of color, I am the uneducated one when it comes to understanding race, because the statistics say that most white people start to think about race, if they ever do, when they're in their mid-adult range, whereas people of color just grow up in it. And so, you know, from a very plain standpoint, it's like me being a first grader talking about race with a bunch of PhDs in the room, <laughs> if we had some people of color talking. So I just want to acknowledge that and say, look, I'm putting this out there because I need to start learning about it and I need some other people to start talking about it too. So there is no expert in the room yeah. right here between you and me. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I'm not an expert on race. I do feel like I can be an expert on white privilege because I, I have benefited and I knowingly have benefited so many times from it. Let's give you, for instance, if you've ever traveled internationally or even not internationally, if you've ever traveled in America, you want to use a bathroom go inside of a lobby of a hotel anywhere in america a nice hotel you can pick the nicest hotel in town and there's a bathroom in the lobby you can walk right in that bathroom go to the bathroom why if you're a white male they think you're staying there if you were to be an african-american young man that might not be the case they might not they might not just let you walk in off the street and use the restroom and traveling internationally i would go to bathrooms in hotel lobbies or use the hotel lobby as my internet access point, just stuff like that, that I'm not staying at that hotel. They have no reason to let me do that. But because I'm a white male, they assume I have the right to be there. And the only reason they assume that is because I'm a white male. There's no other, I have no other discerning qualities. I'm not well-dressed. I don't have nice clothes on. I'm not driving up in a nice car. I'm just white. I'm just white. That's the only thing I've got going for me. And if you ever tried to go through an airport security line as a white male, you don't mind not you may not know this, you're getting a completely different service than a lot of other people that are going through that same line. Um, I flew into so I, I live in Germany, which has its own history of race and race relations, obviously. And I flew into Germany 
last November, and we landed at the airport. I landed at the airport uh, and and was in line at customs or at passport control, right behind a group of Iranians who had landed from a flight from Tehran. It's a completely different uh, experience getting your passport stamped if you have an Iranian passport versus an American passport in Germany or anywhere. So that is, a, that, that is a small snapshot of what privilege looks like in international travel. And that exact same type of thing happens in America every day um, for people of color. It's just easier to do stuff if you're a white guy. Yeah, I think there's a million different stories you can use. And uh, like our students that are traveling, I work for an international travel program sending students abroad. Well, Kivu Gapier Drew was on staff with us for a little while on that project as well. But I've got students living in Rwanda and Peru right now who are, for the first time, experiencing what it's like to be a minority in a culture where they're the only white people that walk down the road and they're called. In Rwanda, they're called Mzungu, 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 which is mean white wandering, white yeah. wanderer. And like, for the first time, they're like, wow, my, the color of my skin does matter. And I am perceived in a certain way. And in Peru, they're called Gringo, Gringo, Gringo. And, uh, you know, and they're assumed, there's so many things that are assumed of them. And this is the first time they're waking up to that. If you've never left the country, never left to the comforts of your neighborhood, then you probably don't even realize that you have those privileges bestowed to you. But one thing I do want to be careful here is that um, I was in a little converse, community conversation on Sunday at a local church about privilege. And one thing we do have to be careful with this conversation is that this isn't like a dogging of the white race um, when we talk about privilege and a guilt-laden type of conversation, because that's destabilizing and that gets nobody anywhere. I mean, you, if you haven't thought about these things, you will have to go through a significant stage of feeling that guilt in your own heart, but that's debilitating if you stop there. What you have to recognize is that with that privilege, you have a voice and an accountability to do something. And so what I would urge us in this conversation to push beyond is not just laying a thick, strong, um, healthy dose of guilt on anybody white talking here, but saying, hey, you have this, how are you using it? Yeah, I agree. So white, we can agree that white privilege is not something that we that was made up. It's a fact of life um, that, for whatever reason, white people, especially white males, seem to have an easier go of things more often than not. Now, are there situations in which it's more difficult to be a white male? Sure, I can conceive of a possible world in which that's the case. But in everyday life, it's better for me to be a white male than almost anything else. And that's and what I like to do is I like to put it to, to the time machine test. And what I, this is what I call, I tell my students that ask about this kind of thing. And then we'll move on to the definition. But if time machines were invented, and the idea of a time machine is a completely white male concept, because no other people group would enjoy a time machine being invented. If you were an African-American man, what time were you going to go back to when life is better than it is today? It isn't. If you're a woman, what time are you going to go back to where life is better for you than it is today? It's not. So just the idea that we have this fun thing of, oh, I'll get in the DeLorean and go back to 1955. Well, it's great if you're Martin McFly, but if you're DeMarcus McFly, that's a terrible idea because you can't use the same water fountains. You can't use the same bathrooms. I mean, it, 
the idea of white privilege just is is even in terms of narrative structure of our movies, we just take it for granted. Like Marty McFly gets things better than he would if he was black, or a woman, or a black woman, for Pete's sake. So that's one definition we can look at. The next definition I want to look at is what is Black Lives Matters. Yeah. Well, and I think you know more than I do. Yeah, I think it's important to say first that um, there's, a, there's an understanding with that phrase that needs to be understood by white people, first of all. It's the understanding that every single human has dignity and should be valued as such. That is the underlying assumption that is made in this statement of Black Lives Matter. The reason that it's being said and the reason it's so controversial is because it is pointing to the focus that the truth of every single person has human dignity and should be treated as such is not the case. Mm. Thus, we have to say black lives matter. And so, you know, it's like if I go out to see I live in Denver and I catch some edge on my snowboard and I pop my collar, pop my collarbone, my collarbone's broken. Mm. If someone comes to my aid, I go to the hospital and someone says, and I say, I'm going to say, my collarbone is broken. Please help me fix it. Well, that doctor's not going to come to me and say, well, yeah, I mean, your collarbone is important, but let's look at all the bones in your body collectively and just acknowledge all of them together right now. Um, and I'm like, no, you know, I'm here at the hospital because my collarbone's broken. I need my collarbone fixed. My collarbone matters. <laughs> yeah, that's a great Luke said, analogy. Luke, Luke, your collarbone matters, but really all your bones in your body matter. They're not addressing the problem. They're, They're not. doctors acting like I don't have a broken collarbone, which is precisely the misdiagnosis and the blindness of American white um, ideology today when it comes to race is that we look at a guy walking in a hospital with a broken collarbone and we say all the bones in your body matter and we're not even dealing with the broken collarbone so can you see how problematic it is if you say a counter narrative to black lives matter like all lives matter or blue lives matter or fill in the blank lives matter you are misdiagnosing what somebody came in, in the hospital for in the first place and then so there's yeah that are playing those semantics need to understand that the reason that this is out there is because there's a broken collarbone and nobody realizes it's broken. Except yeah, the very people who are expressed in that collarbone themselves, the black lives. That I think I think that the, the biggest issue is a lot of times when confronted with something that we are doing wrong, people in general have the tendency to be defensive. And one of those defense mechanisms is pointing out something the person that attacking us is also doing wrong. So when you say, Drew, Luke's life matters, instead of me saying, oh, yeah, it does, I yell back, we have it. But so does Drew's. <laughs> well, but that doesn't mean anything. It's similar to like when, uh, if, when someone tells me that a college football team is good. Like if you were to say, oh, Ohio State got a really good team next year. That doesn't mean that my team isn't good. Like, it's one of those, when someone says, oh, they have a good running game, or they have, they're good at this, you're not, you're not 
positing a statement about every other team, you're just making a statement about that one team. And it's an immature, uh, it's an immature sports fan that thinks that a commentator by complimenting one person is denigrating another. And it's an immature person who believes that someone who, who just wants to express the fact that they have a personhood is somehow denigrating someone else's personhood. And I think that, I think that's part and parcel yeah, so of the same that, thing. That's been lost in translation. The more popularized that's become, the more the media has shined their own interpretation and focus on Black Lives Matter as a movement, as a collective. Um, the more it's been mudslinging and the more it's been looking for ways out of acknowledging this, which I think is expected in the black community. They're not surprised that, you know, a majority white population uh, would try to deny that statement um, in all the ways that we are trying to deny it. Um, the reason I'm open to this conversation, I'll tell you as a white male is because I have been in deep throes of grief. And I felt that genuine connection and I could not dismiss from my couch as I watched online, you know, or watched, you know, in real time on cable news, the stories that were being told out there about protests happening in black communities. Um, the fact that the Ferguson protesters nearly lasted as long as the Montgomery bus boycott um, is infamous, you know, to where these people shouted from the streets and said something is seriously wrong. And you got to know that when somebody shouts from the streets, they got life, they got a life to live, you know, like we all want to go home and we want to be with our families. We want to have dinner together and we want to enjoy life. We want to have fun. And, it, and another example, out, another example of this. this is like the fact that the Ferguson protesters lasted that long, most of them unarmed, um, but the police response to them was, was violent and, and escalating and, and, and just un, inappropriate. And then you look at the guys in Oregon who take over a government building with guns and nothing is done for days and days and days and days and days. And the only difference is one group is white, one group is mostly black. That's the only difference. Yeah. Yeah, and then our listeners will probably get all caught up in this and get their panties tied in a wad, to be honest, because we all want to debate the facts and figures. And I'm sure if you're listening right now, you're not really open to this conversation. You're probably saying, man, these guys are off base. I don't know what they're listening to, what they're looking at. Um, I would just challenge you to say that my place and center in this conversation has not come from the best articles I've found on BuzzFeed or threads through my news feed on Facebook, or even what I've consumed through cable news. My sources are direct contact with the black community themselves and my own story of grief and suffering. And I'd say those things validate this conversation for me in ways that maybe you need to go out and do some homework yourself because we can all paint a picture of what we think is going on out there and portray it in any way we want to. And probably the way, the way analytics work um, in Facebook is 
they tell you back what you want to hear. So the mm. more you like the stuff that you mm. like, the more that stuff shows up on your newsfeed. So it's like, it's not a place where we learn about diversity and different views. It's a place <laughs> where we re reaffirm everything we all believe. Right. Though you're not getting that great a portrayal if you're consuming everything from your online sources. I think you need to go to the people themselves and find out and hear from them. And I guarantee you, you ask one honest black person who you who can trust you and share this with you say what is your experience with the police what is your experience when you walk down the street what is hap what happens when you get pulled over what you know fill in the blank and you will hear stories that will embarrass you hmm. it will embarrass you just as a white male especially if you're listening you'll be shocked at the truth of the story if you yeah. haven't heard this before ask the question to someone what's the talk that you are given by your parents ask this to a person of color or a black male and his family, what's the talk you're given before you're allowed to get your driver's license? Mm -hmm. like, what's the talk? Well, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. You go find it out. But there is a talk that is given by every black family to their son and daughter about how they interact with the police if they get pulled over. Yeah. And that's not a talk that I was ever given. No. Yeah. I mean, it just didn't, that didn't happen because for me, you get pulled over and you just talk to the guy because we're both, you know, the same. So the one thing I want to throw out real quickly when we talk about race is that we have to acknowledge that we're not very educated as white males, especially as white Americans when it comes to this. And there's different ways to understand race. Race, is, can, see, race can be seen in explicit and implicit forms. And I think a lot of times we dismiss this conversation because we don't see explicit racism in ourselves or in other people, unless we can garner to the likes of the KKK and say, yeah, look at that guy. He is a freaking racist. Or hmm. someone drops an inappropriate word like what happened in Oklahoma with those college kids a while back. And we're like, that's an explicit racist. And the whole media gets up in arms and everybody is in agreement that that is wrong. Those guys are racist. But all of a sudden we like, remove ourselves and disassociate ourselves from it and act like we have no, no qualms in the whole deal because I would never say those words or be a member of the KKK. But what we're forgetting about and what we're showing in our ignorance, even in our racial literacy, is that we don't even understand what implicit racism is. And implicit racism happens every day um, in so many ways that you and I can't imagine. Like you walk down the street and you see a black person, probably a black male coming down, you're your uh, head, your pulse rate starts to pick up a little bit. Why? Because all of a sudden you think that you might be potentially in danger. That's an implicit form of racism that you're mm -hmm. experiencing where you, you are assuming something of just a human being walking by you that you wouldn't if that same person was white. Um, there's implicit forms of racism that we experience that are happening um, all around us. Um, one of my friends uh, just wrote a book about how in healthcare system, no matter what kind of justice we give to the black community or people of color, when a doctor, when a white doctor sees a, a, a patient who is of color, there are implicit experiences already happening and being assumed in the questioning and the diagnosis of that person. Um, and she wrote a powerful book. It's called Just Medicine, if you want to pick it up. Um, but, uh, but there's so many implicit forms of racism that are out there that if we don't think about racism in a more complex ideology, 
both explicit and implicit, of historical implications that have led up to today, to the narratives that we're seeing happen. If we don't look at racism from a bigger picture, um, that racism did not end in the civil rights movement, <laughs> and it did not end when we you know, abolished slavery in this country, it just took on new forms. We've got to look at it in a more complex and educated way, rather than our simplistic, defensive, or minimized views of what we define as race. Yeah. All right, so real quick, because I think this is getting, it's getting really good, but I also think it's going to get pretty long. Um, what is the challenge that you're doing with this Lint? Um, could you go back to Lint? With the Lint, the discipline and the exercise that you're doing, what's the challenge that you're giving to others? Yeah, so I think it's really, it's really hard to walk into this as a white male. And uh, so I'm walking in it to it the way that I was really introduced to it through grief. So I'm going through a season of Lent and I'm calling it um, a Lent of Lament. And I want to take some time to grieve over the things that I've missed that the black community, brothers and sisters have experienced for a long time. And so um, there's a few things that I'm doing to help myself with that. First of all, I'm posturing myself in the context of being called out into the desert like Jesus to reflect on this reality in our country that God might show me some things that I haven't seen before. I'm also looking and mirroring off of the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations and how he lamented and grieved over his own people and the failures of them and the um, systems of oppression that they participated in that caused their um, Israel to be um, held in captivity. And I'm looking at that posture of lament from scriptures and how Jeremiah experienced that to see how that might reflect back to me today. Um, and then I'm educating myself because I think we have to, if we're first graders when it comes to racism, then we need to start building up our education. And so um, I'm reading a specific book I'm specifically still working through The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I'm going to read through that. I'm going to educate myself more on what these systems look like of racism today in America uh, from authors who are not like me. Um, and so um, I've invited people to do that posture. Of, and then each mm -hmm. week we're kind of focusing different lament um, that we need to think about. Like my lament this week, why do I tell people that I'm not racist? Yeah. How come, how come I think that? Because I don't say bad words because I'm not a member of the KKK. What am I missing even in that narrative that I need to grieve over? Mm. So I'm kind of just going through the season of grief and I'm really reflecting and I'm educating myself. And I'm also using the scripture to help me understand what lament is biblically. And um, there's a great book by Sung Chan Ra called Prophetic mm. Lament that even walks through and breaks down the the uh, narrative of Jeremiah in Lamentations and how um, he understood that. And I'm using that as a guide. So it's a very spiritual time. And I see racism as a very spiritual conversation. I don't think we're divorced from it. Um, I think it's something that we as Christians and followers of Jesus need to deeply lean into. And I'm just going to, yeah, sort of put on the sackcloth and ashes, so yeah. to speak. When I go, go to Ash Wednesday service today, I'm going to go in a spirit of lament and to see what, 
you know, might become of that? What might I learn and grow in during this time so that I can stand in solidarity with the black community when they voice this pain? It's big, it's political, it's, it's crazy, it's spiritual, it's true, it's real. Um, it's everything that we've talked about and more. And it's, it runs deep into all of us. And I think that this is a great start for each of us to take. Um, in trying to, to investigate the hate in our own heart, because it, it, it is hate at the end of the day. And it's, it's a hate that can easily be turned to love if it's recognized and uh, if we put the work in to change ourselves. So where can they find this? On your Facebook page? I would just, yeah, it's been posted on my Facebook page. I would just say, look for Luke Parrott and then message me and I'll send you the stuff or let you join the Facebook group if you want in on it. I just Two R's, two please. T's. Two R's, two T's. Yeah, P-A-R-O-T-T, Luke. Um, and just, yeah, message me and I'll get you into the group. And we're just kind of, honestly, we're on this journey together, but we're also letting God lead us into the desert and look to read to lament over this idea of race and learn and educate ourselves and also look at the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, so, yeah, it's good. It's a season of 40 days. And if you want to join me, just look for Luke Parrott on book and shoot me a, a message and I'll chime you into the whole deal. Cool. All right, man. Well, it's been great talking to you and you are a great dude. And this is an amazing thing. And I just want to, rec to encourage everyone listening that recognition of other people, especially the other, as not just agents of grace, recipients of grace, and also givers uh, of God's grace to us, because everything is grace around us. Grace is, is constantly surrounding us. And when we recognize that, we're able to give uh, value to others in a better way. We have to recognize the value in ourselves and recognize the value in other people and that God's grace is over all of that. So may we have the grace and we have the mercy uh, and the strength to accomplish these goals. So thanks for being on the podcast today, Luke. And we will talk yeah, to you later. Yeah. All right. Grace and peace.